0: You're listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. Join your hosts, Michael and Jenna, as they discuss all things ORAU through interviews with our experts who provide innovative scientific and technical solutions for our customers. They'll talk about ORAU's storied history, how we're impacting an ever-changing world, and our commitment to our community. Welcome to Further Together, the ORAU podcast.
1: Good morning and welcome to another episode of Further Together, the ORU podcast. I'm Michael with my sidekick,
0: Jenna. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm
1: good. It's it another is. exciting morning here at ORU. It
0: is.
1: Happy Wednesday.
0: Oh, hump day. You
1: <laughs> can <laughs> see the end of the week. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> but Wednesday also means a new episode. So here we are yeah. with one of our favorite people, Jamie Kennedy.
0: How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for being here. You're
1: welcome. <laughs> you look a little nervous. No, I'm
2: supposed to say like on NPR. Thank you for having That's me. Right. <laughs> That's, right. <Exactly. laughs> <podcast> <laughs> That's
1: right. That's right. Exactly. There's etiquette. That's right. That's <laughs> they all say yeah. thank you for having me. <laughs> so Jamie, welcome. Tell us a little bit about who is Jamie Kennedy. What do you do for for ORU and you know, how long have you been here?
0: What do you do? What have you done?
1: All of that. (laughs) Where have you been? It's changed a little bit. (laughs) It's changed a little bit. It has
2: changed. Uh, So I hired in as the Vice President of Business Development and I was in that role for 10 years and then I decided I wanted to have a life. So (laughs) I asked Andy uh, for permission to go Mm part-time and step out of the business development role and I am now running the strategic plan for the corporation. Uh, and supposedly working 20 hours a week. (laughs) It usually ends up being a bit more than that. Uh, Prior to coming to ORU, I was with SAIC for 28 years as a senior vice president for business development. And my goal when I came to ORU was not to do business development. And you see how (laughs) well I accomplished that. That (laughs) works great.
1: (laughs) It only took you 10 years. (laughs) It's
2: (laughs) all right. Uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing, and I have also um, run the culture change program uh, for the company as part of what I was doing, mm-hmm. and that's about it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's about it. So your official title is like strategic plan advisor? Yes. Okay. okay. So what does the strategic plan advisor do?
0: So
2: we took a very different approach to strategic planning than most companies do. And I had done strategic planning at SAIC, but my experience with traditional strategic planning is people say really wonderful things like, we want the company to be the premier provider of IT to the federal government. Mm -hmm. And every federal government contractor says that. Right. Well, the premier provider means only one of them actually achieved that. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. And mostly those strategic plans end up on a shelf gathering dust for a year mm-hmm. and then they get dusted off a year later, updated, updated. and put back on the shelf right. for another year. So when we decided to update our strategic plan, uh, Andy and I took a look at a book called Good Strategy, Bad Strategy by I think Patrick Rumelt. Mm-hmm. And Uh, it was very interesting, because he talked about how bad strategic plans generally are and how to make it better. And we decided we would try to implement the strategic plan using that book as a guideline. And what it required us to do was, for Andy to have a vision for the company, and then for us to step back from that vision and, and ask ourselves, what are all the obstacles that are in the way of us achieving that vision? and once we identified those obstacles we prioritized them and said if we got rid of these obstacles it would have the biggest impact and then we came up with strategies for how to or put together teams to come up with strategies for how to overcome those obstacles and it we did that in 2012 and then we revitalized that process again in 2017 so we're in the beginning of the second year of implementation. Mm -hmm. And we had something in the neighborhood of over 80 recommendations for how to clear obstacles out of the way toward achieving our vision. And this time, unlike the first time, we have put some metrics in place to measure the success of the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. And the basic tenet is that we need, as a company, to diversify our portfolio of business. Mm -hmm just like you would diversify your investments for retirement. If sure. you have all of your investments in one stock and it doesn't do well, you're kind of in trouble. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's, the without talking too much about business-sensitive information, Absolutely. The, the initiative is to try to diversify the portfolio of business uh, and make sure that the company is on solid footing uh, going forward into the future.
0: Okay. How difficult do you think it is um, to get buy-in from the general p- employee population on the strategic plan and the initiatives and the goals and what is the strategic plan or teams doing to help kind of mitigate those issues? So
2: one of the interesting things Andy does is he holds town hall meetings Mm -hmm. uh, two, three times a year. And at one of those meetings we asked everybody in that was in the room uh, that had participated in some fashion in the strategic plan to stand up and I would guess we had better than half of the employees standing at the end of that Mm -hmm. so that's one way we've had a lot so we as I said we set up these teams to clear the obstacles and to make recommendations about things that we should do and each team is probably eight to ten people and right now we must have eight ten teams working uh, working on the problems and then there was a separate set of uh, separate team that actually put the strategic plan together there's a team that we brief that to that is a decision-making body there are people that are ad hoc members of these teams they only get brought in when we need their specific subject matter expertise so a whole lot of people are touching it. I think we've briefed the strategic plan at every town hall meeting in the last <laughs> while. Uh, we have a website that we've set up that all the employees can go to and see the progress we're making against the plan. The board of directors is briefed on it every board meeting, which is three times a year. So. Uh, and even with all of that I'm not sure we're communicating enough we even have a communication plan that Jenna is in charge (laughs) of uh, that we send out communications employee-wide across the company saying here's what's happening here's where we are we just um, finished this recommendation and implemented it that sort of thing so uh, and I'm about a week from today in fact to have a lunch and learn and just tell everybody that If you have any questions about what we're doing or why we're doing it, come and ask. And um, the strategic planning team will be sitting there available to answer questions.
1: Fantastic. We talk a lot about employee empowerment at ORE, and it sounds like that's the number of people involved in the process is part of that sort of empowerment and decision-making process.
2: Yeah, and um, so we came up with five guiding principles for the strategic plan, and the number one guiding principle was employee empowerment. And um, so I am also an almost PhD (laughs) in organizational psychology, all but dissertation. And uh, when I was doing my work (coughs) toward that degree, one of the things that interested me tremendously was a concept called organizational silence mm-hmm. and there's a good bit of research that's been done on that that suggested that employees understand when they are not permitted to speak up and as a result according to the research it resulted in Worldcon Uh, WorldCom and Enron Mm -hmm. and the disasters there because there were people who tried, there were employees who tried to speak up and say things are not going the way they should be. Mm -hmm. Uh, They were ostracized, they were put out to pasture, they were counseled out of the firm, whatever. uh, But management never uh, got to hear their voices. And when I came to ORU 11 years ago, 12 years ago, there was some of that here. And so a huge part of what we discovered when we did the obstacles for employee empowerment were the pockets in the corporation where employees did not feel invited to safe to speak up. Mm -hmm. And we've been trying to change that culture through a lot of things. One of them was the Business Culture Action Team. Mm Uh, But many other aspects of it, the leadership training we're doing, uh, we put our executives through two and a half years of leadership, accountability, and communication training because we believed that that had to start top down, that if our executives were not walking the walk and acting like it was okay and safe to get in Andy's face or anybody's face and say, there's a real problem here and we need to address it, that it would never take hold among the employees. And still, I think to this day, we still have some cultural barriers to that. There are a lot of people who've been with the company for a very long time and uh, the company was, when I got here, very hierarchical. Mm -hmm. And I would say almost patriarchal in the way it did business. So there's been a huge shift because Andy is not that kind of person. but for the people who were entrenched in that culture, it's hard to change after you've been in it for a long
1: time. It's almost mm-hmm. like muscle memory, mm-hmm. just sort of get used to
2: Well, and there was a lot of sort of information is power. Mm-hmm. So if I don't share it, then it's mine. i powerful. Yeah, yeah you're well, and you have to come ask me for, right, it, for right. that, <laughs> and I might give it to you if I like you enough. <laughs> <Right. clears
1: throat> if the moon is full, and yes, you stand all of on that. one leg. And you're actually doing another podcast interview Mm -hmm. talking about Agile, (laughs) which is um, something we also talk a lot about Mm -hmm. at ORU in terms of planning and how we get work done and sort of moving things along relatively quickly, at least quick for (laughs) us, (laughs) right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Talk a little bit about that as well.
2: I took the Cal One training and it is a leadership class and it is meant to help uh, leaders in the corporation have uh, an agile mindset. So, fail fast if you're going to fail. Um, be flexible, be um, an, a servant leader to your employees. Try to get teams working and creating the best solutions. So, it, it was kind of interesting to me because coming out of business development, um, I, I'm not a technical expert in anything other than horses (laughs) Um, and sometimes my dog Uh, but your job is as a proposal manager in business development to harness the subject matter experts in the corporation who write the technical approach to solve a customer's problem and So, you don't have a choice except to use a team to create that because I'm not, if we did it in um, environmental assessment, I am not an environmentalist. (laughs) If we did it in health physics, I'm not a health physicist. So, I have to rely on those guys and be able to give them a structure in which they can write what they know Mm -hmm. and sell it. So I was used to that environment. It's also true that in business development, the government throws you curveballs all the time and you have to react to that. Quick on your feet. And yes, because you got a deadline. If you don't submit the proposal on time, you lose Mm -hmm. and you've wasted all those resources. So um, having to adjust and adapt quickly to changing things. There was a proposal we were doing at one point that uh, the woman that we were gonna bid as our project manager for the work I mean, we were a week away from submitting the proposal and she resigned. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. So we had to find a new project <laughs> nice. manager mm-hmm. and rewrite the proposal around her credentials. Uh, so, yeah, you have to be adaptable yeah, and, and you have to be able to adjust. Uh, the strategic plan is much the same thing, there are a ton of dependencies in the strategic plan, and if A doesn't happen, then B, C, and F might not either, and you've gotta get D and E online then. So Agile seemed like a really uh, wonderful approach to take to something that was as uncertain as the strategic plan. I like the fact that you do the work in two-week increments, uh, two-week sprints. There is a team of about 10 of us that are working on, the recommendations for the way we're going to phase the strategic plan in and they're made up of i mean i i got to i had the luxury and the wonderful uh, gift of being able to specify kind of the skill set that i wanted on the team Mm -hmm. i had the luxury of looking back on some teams that had been put together and had not been terribly successful Uh, And I think in part because nobody had specified the skill set that was needed for the work. So they got what they got and Mm -hmm. it's not that they weren't great employees, but uh, if you're asked to come provide input on health physics and you don't know anything about it, it's a little hard to be useful. absolutely. So I got to specify what I wanted out of the team members and the skills that I felt we needed for the strategic plan and I got uh, a tremendous group of people to work with. I mean an absolutely tremendous group of people. And uh, I'm a firm believer that collectively we're all smarter than any of us is individually. And mm-hmm. so have and and I picked people who were very strongly voiced. So back to the whole organizational silence thing. I wanted people who would look at me and say, You're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> we don't That's need to not do gonna that. Work. <laughs> yeah. Um or or Jamie you just cut somebody off I wanted to create that environment and I have a team that works that Mm -hmm. way and I'll give a really quick example but uh, the team was trying to make one final decision for the recommendation document and eight of us were in one camp and two of us were in a different camp and finally the two people who didn't agree with the majority said you guys need to stop talking you can talk until you're blue in the face, you're not gonna change my mind. I believe my position's accurate. So if the will of the team is that we go with the majority, then we'll just salute the flag and and go on, which was great. But it was also wonderful for them to say stop talking because we were spending a lot of time trying to convince the two outliers. Mm -hmm. And what I ended up saying was no, if you feel that strongly about it, there are likely to be people on the stakeholder team that are gonna feel that strongly in your camp as well. So let's go forward with both recommendations Mm -hmm. and explain to the stakeholders why we couldn't come to consensus, why we didn't choose to just take the majority opinion, and we'll let the stakeholders decide. And what happened out of that and the thing that I think you get out of that and the reason it's so empowering is those two members of the team felt deeply heard Mm -hmm. and did not feel like they got railroaded into a decision Mm -hmm. they just couldn't agree with and that the team respected their position enough to provide it to the stakeholders. And I think that's what we're trying to open up um, and I think we still have some managers, it's probably true in any company, that are fearful of being confronted.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, maybe they're a little insecure. Maybe they um, have some self-esteem issues. We have a very introvert, introverted culture. Sure. So sometimes that difficult conversation thing is hard here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but I don't think anybody gets up coming to work and saying, let me see if I can do a really bad job mm-hmm. today. <laughs> right, right. So, um, so, that's what we're trying to do with the employee empowerment. And I think that's a very large part of the agile culture mm-hmm. is to say that you're only as good as your team mm-hmm. is that supports you. And um, that's not to say that sometimes you don't have bad fits. Mm-hmm. but sure. uh, but it's really true and it's been an incredible experience to work with this group of people on the strategic plan because they really are um, strongly voiced and don't hesitate to tell each other what they think and and they've also been very uh, responsible for standing up and saying i you, you told me you wanted me to go interview Michael but Michael and I don't have a good relationship right. so I probably shouldn't be the one <laughs> that has to go interview Michael we right. should send somebody else right <clears throat>
0: And one of the reasons that they're interested in interviewing is because this hasn't really been done too many times before in a company, correct? Using agile to carry out a strategic plan
1: right.
0: initiative. So you're kind of like a the test case. Well, it was
2: funny. So um, Ricky Schwartz, who's the president of Brain Trust, uh, after we finished the cal one training she did a check-in call with anybody that wanted to that Mm -hmm. had participated in the training and it was just to say how did it go did you get something out of it blah blah and we were already uh, before i took the cal training we were already using the agile processes for so i told ricky in my check-in call that we were doing that and she was like seriously i've never had anybody use agile for strategic planning and she asked me if she could check in every quarter Mm -hmm. and just see how it was going so we've had i think three phone calls and then she invited me to be on the podcast (laughs) that's wonderful well it
0: really shows the the different facets of agile mm -hmm. and how you can kind of mold it to fit with whatever you're working with because i think initially our organization especially you know working with the government a lot agile was a scary word because we didn't really think we were agile. We had processes and you know deadlines and people weren't really open to, to trying a new way. But I think within using agile for the strategic plan and having all these teams and these people are working on it, they're getting a taste of what it can be and really making it their own. Um, well, yeah, and that's
2: been the interesting thing because um, I, with any process, people tend to be really driven by the process mm-hmm. itself, and uh, and we have people who get very emphatic about following the process yeah. precisely. And it was fun to talk to Ricky and to say, you know, I've and that's what my podcast interview this afternoon is going to be about: is how did we have to adapt mm-hmm. agile for what we're doing? And I said, Ricky, I got to tell you honestly, there are people who have come up to me and said, you can't say you're using Agile because you're not following mm-hmm. the process precisely. And and she said, well, you can tell them from me, I'm all behind you. 100%. <laughs> I said, well, maybe you should blog about that, yeah. Ricky. But, you know, so one of the tenets of Agile is that a team should be 100% dedicated mm-hmm. to the work of the team. Right. Well. In our business, that's not feasible. We have people who have day jobs that are billable time. Absolutely. And they're, I'm borrowing them. They're matrixing to me for the strategic plan, and we're always gonna be that way. I don't think either one of you does one job, mm-hmm. right? I don't do one not job right. here. That's just not the way it works. So we've adapted and yes, I get that Agile came out of an IT development environment and you would like to have an IT team Mm -hmm. working exclusively on one project, that makes sense. But we're adapting an IT process to a Mm -hmm. non-IT function. So, and Ricky was just great. She was like, you go, girl. (laughs) So- That's great. uh, Yeah, and the fact that, I, I think the fact that she wants to interview me and that, the questions are gonna be, how did you have to a- adapt to Agile to a non-IT environment, and how has that worked, and what have your lessons learned been, and that sort of stuff is really interesting to her, mm-hmm. so.
1: I think for me it's exciting. I mean, our team has just really been introduced. Well, except for Jenna, who's like a power user, but. You know, <laughs> but you know, most of our, our team has been, the editorial team has been introduced to Agile, really just recently. Um, And having, I guess, been in the career that I've been, like, it just feels so natural. Like, Mm -hmm. you move fast, you do something, you take a look at it. If it's not working, you make a change, and you know, you you adjust and you keep moving, so.
2: Well, and that was, I mean, that's what business development is. So I came out of that same sort of environment. It was not, in fact, the pace of the rest of the company feels very slow sometimes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Understandable. Um, So I wanna switch gears just a little bit. Earlier this year, you had a very interesting experience um, where you and your husband were airlifted off a cruise ship off the coast of Norway. And I don't want to... We've talked about the details in many other places, so if you're listening and you want to Google <laughs>
0: Jamie don't Kennedy. contact that's me. That's right. If you want to Google. Call film, Michael. That's right,
1: exactly. If you're with the media, call me, um, and I'll tell you no. <laughs> Just kidding, um, mostly. Um, okay. If you Google Jamie Kennedy and Norway, you're likely to find news clips of um, the story I'm not telling anybody of,
2: how to spell my name. That's right. That's right. <laughs>
1: Um but you know being airlifted off a cruise ship and I, I, again I don't want to sort of beat the details to death because we've talked about that but you had this very obviously difficult experience but a lot of life lessons came out of that experience I would imagine and I just wanted to as we wrap up this podcast just sort of touch on what some of those might be as you know you sort of saw the community um there come together to help all of the passengers who were stranded and and that sort of thing, what you learned out of that experience?
2: Boy, I'd like to move to Norway, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, that culture is so amazing to me and um, something I had never experienced anywhere. So I've been to Germany, I've been to France, and Norway was really something. So I'll give you a great example. One of the very first experiences um, we had we were in Oslo. This was before, before. the airlines.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and we went we wanted to go see a bunch of museums that were all in one central location, but away from the hotel. So people were like, well just take the bus, it's really easy. And everybody in Norway speaks English pretty much, mm-hmm. so you're kind of safe to do that. But the the stop notifications in the bus were not intuitive. Mm-hmm. And so we got to the museum and we're coming back and one of the museums for anybody who's read Thor Heyerdahl was the Contiki Museum and the actual Contiki ship was in the museum. So we're coming back and this woman who's sitting on the bus with us looks at us and says, did you just go to the museums? And we said, yes. And she said, did you go to the Contiki Museum? And I said, yes. And she was from India. And she was a student there and her thesis was on Contiki. And mm-hmm. so she was asking us how we even knew about Thor Heyerdahl. And I mm-hmm. said, well, it was required reading when I was mm-hmm. growing up. And it was for my friend who was with us. Uh, and so anyway, we got to talking to her and I said, could you tell us what stop to get off at? Because I can't mm-hmm. tell. And she said, well, I'll just take you. Cause I have to, I'll, I'll get off with you. Cause I have to get off at that stop. So we're sitting there, she's being sweet about that, and then this little, like, seven year old boy with a backpack gets on the bus and he's got his cell phone and he, he does something with it on the bus to let him in and out. And he was clearly, a, it was a school day, he was clearly a school person. And I said, Well, where are the school buses? And this girl said, There aren't school buses, the kids all ride public transportation. Wow. And I said, seriously, there's no parents. This child got on at a mm-hmm. stop without a parent there, was riding to wherever he was going, gonna get off. Mm-hmm. And I'm literally, he's like seven. And I'm thinking, we don't even let our kids walk to school mm-hmm. anymore if they live a block away. Right. So there was that. Then we go to a bakery. And outside the bakery, in I mean, it's like 35 degrees outside. There's all these baby buggies, trams. And the babies are inside, and there's no parent. They're all inside having coffee. (laughs) And the babies are piled up with, well, so the Norwegians believe the fresh air is really good for their kids. Mm -hmm. And the country is that safe that they can go into the coffee shop with their friends and have coffee and leave the babies outside. Wow.
0: That's crazy.
2: And uh, when we ended up in... after the evacuation, my husband was in the hospital and it was maybe half a mile from the hotel. So walking distance once I figured out where it was. Mm -hmm. But I'm going up and seeing him and walking back in a city Mm -hmm. at 10 o'clock at night in the dark by myself and it was perfectly safe. I had absolute, now I grew up in New outside of New York City in Chicago. <laughs> right. I would never walk alone in the city by yeah. myself. Right. But little seven and eight year old kids were out yeah. and by themselves walking around and that's Norway. And we were in the third helicopter off the ship. So it was maybe an hour, hour and a half after the May Day had been called. They took us to a gymnasium uh, that was right on the shoreline. So it was maybe 10, 15 minutes uh, on the helicopter. And like I said, an hour, an hour and a half after the Mayday call had gone out, we walked into this gymnasium and it was full of probably a hundred volunteers in and out with water, with blankets, with clothing. Doctors and nurses were already there. They were triaging everybody that came off the helicopters because they took the, the most mm-hmm. urgent medical cases first. But I was like, H- who are you? I mean, where <laughs> did all these people come from? Right. And I can't remember the word, but it was in the uh, newsprint press. Mm-hmm. But there's a word they have about that in a crisis, the community comes together. Mm -hmm. And these were just all local people who had come out to volunteer and everywhere we went. I mean, when I got, so we were then on the first bus out of the gymnasium to the hotel, Mm -hmm. got to the hotel. There were doctors and nurses already there, clothing Mm -hmm. there, food there, vouchers for, I mean, it was just unbelievable. And they stayed with us. I mean, I could, I didn't have, so I got off the ship with the clothes on my back and my cell phone. Mm -hmm. My husband had no cell phone, it went into the Norwegian (laughs) Mm sea. So I couldn't, I I knew he, I had gone with him to the hospital, but it was night and it was dark and it was a Norwegian name that Mm -hmm. wasn't hospital. And I couldn't call him because I couldn't, I didn't know the name of the place. He didn't have a cell phone. And one of the Norwegian Red Cross people just grabbed hold of me, and she saw me crying, and she said, what can I do? And I said, I'm trying to find my husband. And there are hospitals, and then there are sort of these triage hospitals that they use if you don't, aren't really sick enough to go to a hospital, but you need to be someplace. And she, so there was one of each, and she called around until she found my husband and then gave me her cell phone and had them patch me through to him. And, yeah. uh, and from that moment on, I mean, she, she actually walked me up to the hospital um, so I could see how to get there in the daylight the mm-hmm. next day. And, and then there was a, uh, with her was a 16-year-old young man, and I said, how long have you been volunteering for the Red Cross? And he said, since I was twelve and a half. Wow. And it's just what they do. This just yep. what
1: they do. It's who yeah. they are.
2: That's who they are. And I mean I would I would move there in a <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was such a wonderful experience and they were just such wonderful people and they they opened up a mall one day uh, on a Sunday that was closed just to let the passengers on the ship come through wow. and pick up clothing because we did we had left
1: everything yeah. right uh,
2: and all the shopkeepers just said sure we'll come in and we'll open and
1: <laughs> let them
2: come. That's amazing. It was it was really
1: amazing. Wow. So, yeah, Google, <laughs> Google <Shy>. Jamie Kennedy <laughs> <J-A-M-I-D>. <laughs> to find out more about her amazing story. Jamie, thank you so much. Yeah, well, you this is great. Are Spending time with us today. <laughs> and um, look for another episode of the podcast uh, in a couple of weeks. Yep.
2: Nothing will be as exciting
1: as this one. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> All
2: right. Thank,
0: thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Further Together, the ORAU podcast. To learn more about any of the topics discussed by our experts, visit www.orau.org. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at O-R-A-U, and on Instagram at O-R-A-U together.